throughout um, uh, the coming uh, Sundays through August and uh, today, there's no set passage for the preacher. So I thought, what should I do? Yeah, let, let you go early. <laughs> Very good. That's a good school teacher one. Just open the Bible. That's something I saw at Glynstead. Just open the Bible and see where it lands. Well, have done that. Um, I think prayer might have be, would be a good idea, wouldn't it, to discover what the Lord, try to discover what the Lord wants to say to us today. It is very, help, um, very uh, difficult sometimes. We had a discussion one Tuesday evening here how it's a temptation to the preacher perhaps to ride some old hobby horse I can see the fear in some of your faces as I say that (laughs) or I thought I might have to do this because I had a a text today from Phil or Jill did suggesting I was preaching at Loham tonight well somebody's made a mistake in their diary thankfully So I'm not, but I thought, well, what would I do? Well, a second, I, I could dig out an old sermon that I thought was quite good, or that went quite well somewhere else, you know, and so that, that might do the trick. I've got a box full of those. I could share something with you from my own sort of personal study, or perhaps just wait, and, you know, suddenly there's a moment of inspiration. Ever had that? Like, for example... If you visit some places and if you look at the street names, they're quite inspirational, aren't they? Bath, for example, there's a place called Quiet Street. That's a sermon. Um, And, uh, you know, so on. Well, before we started our studies in James, we had done six studies from the life of David. (coughs) All that really did was um, dealt with, you know, sort of six aspects, but it in no way was a study of the life of uh, David, uh, considering most of two books of the Bible are devoted uh, to the life of uh, David. For me, it simply whetted my appetite and reminded me that the life of David was one of contrasts, of triumphs and tragedies. He was a warrior king and a poet. He was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a great sinner who experienced the consequences of his sin, and much more importantly, experienced God's forgiveness. So, thinking about that, I, I was taken back more years than I care to share with you uh, to some incidents that I heard when I first heard of some incidents from the life of David as a young Christian, but um, they've never left me, and I want to share that with you this morning. So, John's going to bring us our reading now, which will make things a little uh, clearer. So this is from <coughs> David and Nephi Ocean. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for John? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Zeta. They summoned him to appear before and the king said to him, Are you Zeba? At your service. The king asked, 
names. <laughs> Sorry to inflict that on you, John. I always say Mephibosheth, but uh, there we are. It's a bit of a thing typing it out as well, because the spell checker has no idea. <laughs> you know, there we are. So, um, John has read to us uh, part of the story of David and Mephibosheth. And um, I think the first thing we see here is that uh, character of David that is described as a man after God's own heart. You see, this takes place when David really is at the height of his powers. By now, he is the king of uh, both uh, Judah and Israel. He's the king of Israel. He is um, the ruler of the whole nation. You look in chapter 5, you see that's where that comes to a culmination. Chapter 8, you can see that he's the leader of a victorious army. He's unbeaten uh, these days. And um, in chapter 5 also, he's the conqueror of Jerusalem. Nobody else had succeeded in uh, conquering this city, which was perched on a Judean hill, 
occupied by the Jebusites. They were people of no consequence, but they occupied something that nobody else could conquer. But David succeeded in doing that. Hence, Jerusalem, the city of David, and it became, as you know, the the center, the focus (coughs) for the whole uh, Jewish nation, even uh, today, referred to as the Holy City. In chapter 6, we see how he restored the Ark of the Covenant to uh, the people of Israel, to to Jerusalem. It found its home there. So, militarily, doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? Uh, Religiously, um, David was at the top of his game, as it were. He Uh, was a success at this point in every respect. It's also interesting in chapter 5, if you want to read it, you find he had numerous wives, concubines and children, which I guess again in those days would be a mark of success. And in the midst of all this, he remembers his friend Jonathan and asks that question, is there anyone still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? And then he hears about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth's story so far is a really sad one. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, we're told that Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan, that being their death, came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. So he was not only dispossessed in fear of his life, being a direct descendant of Saul. I mean, the natural thing in, in the day and age in which we're talking about, the natural thing would have been to have eliminated Saul's family. That, any other ruler in any other uh, of the surrounding nations, uh, if there was a kind of opposing or deposed royal family, that's what they would have done. You know, that, that, um, that, that's simply uh, what happened in those days. So, that, so Mephibosheth lived in fear of his uh, <coughs> life. And um, not only that, he was lame, and anything that he uh, possessed was out of the goodness of other people, the person who took him in and so on. <coughs> he had nothing of his own, despite being a descendant of a once wealthy uh, king and family. But then, here's good news. He suddenly finds himself back in a palace, treated as if he was the son of a king. To be at the king's table was to be part of the king's family. He was treated as if he was the son of a king. But what's more, his family fortunes are restored. And his lameness is of no consequence. His inability to walk uh, doesn't affect him in any way because he is able to uh, live in the king's household and to live as one of the king's family. The Levitical law would have kept him from the house of God. If you go back into Leviticus and so on, nothing that's lame or blemished or is allowed (coughs) into the... uh, uh, the tabernacle, the, the temple, 
But David displays God's love and grace by giving Mephibosheth a place at his table, at the heart of his family life. After all, even today, a real way of showing kindness to somebody is to bring them into your home, isn't it? And to share your, your meal, your table with them. Now, I recall as a young Christian, when I first heard this story, another old preacher uh, warning against spiritualizing Abraham's big toe. What he was saying was, you have to be careful when you look at the Old Testament not to think that everything, you know, has something uh, to say necessarily. But here, I don't think that's right. I understand what he was trying to say. We must be careful when we handle God's word and not speculate. We must seek to understand and to, by uh, study and prayer, to draw out of it what God wants us to see. But I believe here we have a lovely picture of redemption. That's another old-fashioned Bible word. I've got a picture to show you now. don't know if you can see that. But when Jill and I went to Venice, we didn't know, but it coincided with the Festival of Redemption on the 16th and the 17th, uh, that weekend. And um, on the side there, you can quite see it. But um, that's the firework display. So on the Saturday evening on Jill's birthday, there was a big firework display. It was wonderful. And it was a religious festival. When we, before the um, fireworks, uh, we were walking around on the, um, the sort of seafront there and we ventured into the side streets. And the local people were putting up uh, tables and chairs. The accordion players were tuning up and there was not, <coughs> because they were prepared for a big party. And they were going to party through the evening and then at 11.30 it culminated in a firework display. But you know, I wonder, did they know what they were celebrating? We were in the, we kind of got ourselves near the front in one place and there was all these people behind us and all the young, I mean, we had no idea what they were doing, but all the, the young men particularly were chanting, it could have been Italian rugby songs for all, for all we know, you know. But there was an incredible amount of exuberance. There was joy there. But I don't know, did they know what it meant, the festival of the Redeemer? Did they know who they were celebrating, the person of our Lord? Because he's our Redeemer, isn't he? <coughs> Redemption's a Bible word that describes what happened when a person believes, comes to a point where they turn to faith, where they accept God's Son Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. This is described in many ways. In the Bible, it um, talks about moving from death to life, from darkness to light. But the point is that it's all the work of our Savior who paid the price of our salvation on the cross, thus redeeming us, buying us back. That's what redemption means, isn't it? It's a wonderful uh, word. Nowadays, we seem sometimes to be afraid to use those old Bible words. I think that's right. We shouldn't use them if we're not able to explain them. You know, it's easy sometimes to talk the language. 
But uh, we need to understand the language too. <clears throat> so this, uh, I make no apologies for fitting this message, this gospel message, this good news in here. Sometimes in an attempt not to sound old-fashioned, we water down the truth. We don't want to sound out of touch. But you know, of necessity, we need to rehearse the gospel message. We need to remind ourselves and remind others, as we've heard in prayer this morning, that the very person to whom we owe everything is God's Son, Jesus we're here this morning because of him, our Redeemer. So as we return to this story, some points to note. <clears throat> you see, Paul Mephibosheth found himself where he was as a consequence of sin. He was Saul's grandson. Saul was chosen by the people to be the king of Israel. He fitted the job description He did quite well to begin with and then it all went wrong because of sin, because of disobedience to God. (coughs) And we find ourselves in a similar situation, far from the presence and favor of God because of sin. Former Phibosheth was crippled and living in exile. Chapter 9 tells us he lived in Lodibar. Now, does that sound the sort of place you'd want to live? It's great, isn't it? The Bible does it sometimes. It kind of fits the word to the circumstances. It just doesn't sound right at all. Now, I had trouble finding Lodibar on a map in my Bible atlas. But I did discover it's in northwest Gilead in the land assigned to the tribe of Gad. You remember when the land was divided um, in Joshua between the, the tribes? The tribe of Gad got a bit of land in this place called Gilead. Well, for one thing, it was the wrong side of the River Jordan. This was a bit the other side. Not after they crossed over, but a bit left on the other side. It's kind of bit left over. Doesn't sound very good, does it? But the point is, it was a long way from Jerusalem. A long way from King David. It was a long way from the center of things. It was a long way from where anything was going to take place. It was a, not a desirable place to be. This was, to say the least, obscurity. We might even think of it as a kind of living death. For the glories that would have belonged to Mephibosheth as a grandson of the king, of a son of the king's son, and maybe possibly a king at some time, or a king himself, had been denied him, and he was in exile in a place called Lodibar. And that's what sin does to us. It keeps us far, far away from God and far away from all the benefits of being a child of God. <clears throat> but David, we remember, remembers the promise he made with Jonathan. In 1 Samuel 20, uh, in verses 14 and 15, we read the words of Jonathan. But show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness, as long as I live, so that, so that I may not be killed. 
And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off everyone of David's enemies from the face of the earth. You see, Jonathan knew. When David and Jonathan became friends, Jonathan knew that he was Saul's son and would suffer the consequences of that. But he also knew that David was God's man. And so between them was a really special bond. And they made promises to one another. And David's promise to Jonathan was that he would not forget his family. And in the same way, we, Christians, children of God, the redeemed, we're where we are, we're who we are, because of God's Son, Jesus. Because when God looks upon you and me, in all our failures, in all our, I use that old-fashioned word again, in all our sin, he doesn't see us. He sees Jesus. It's the same thing, you see. Remember what, when we sit around the communion table and we take that cup of wine and we remember the words of our Saviour. This is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. He's made a promise to us. But you know, a covenant has two sides. It requires a response from us. And so like Mephibosheth, <coughs> we find ourselves redeemed and restored. This is what... Um, We heard some weeks ago now when we were studying Ephesians. But it's good to be reminded of it. In chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you know, isn't that wonderful? I go back to 1 Samuel 20 and Jonathan says, but show me unfailing kindness. When we get into the New Testament, speaking of ourselves and what God has done for us, what do we read about? We read about kindness, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. David showed Mephibosheth the kindness of God, the self-same kindness that God shows us in giving us his son. Do you know, my heart beats faster, you can't tell. But it beats faster as I speak of these things. <clears throat> I'm in a bit of trouble breathing anyway. But you know, this really should quicken us and stir us up. We, were, we are destined for destruction, for a place far from God. <clears throat> 
Whatever we might value or treasure in this world doesn't compare to the riches of God's grace. That's what we read, the incomparable riches of God's grace. There's not a word in the scriptures that doesn't have significance. It's not the riches of God's grace, it's the incomparable. There isn't anything else you can compare it with. This is unique. And it's ours. Mephibosheth was given an inheritance. Everything of his father and grandfather was restored to him and his family. He was given security and a future. And we too, like Mephibosheth, have a glorious inheritance. In Colossians 1, 11 13, we read, Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of of light for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves do you feel rescued this morning or have we kind of just drifted into it we're not here by accident do you believe God has a plan and a purpose for your life And he's made us his heirs. In Romans we read, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we also may share in his glory. When I was working uh, full time, I used to get quite a bit involved in people's inheritances. Inheritance tax was something that I knew and probably do still know quite a bit about. And people get very concerned about what they're going to inherit or what their children might not inherit if the tax man gets too big a chunk. But here we have an inheritance that we share with God's Son. What an inheritance! That must be. So you see, we can draw these parallels with Mephibosheth. And we can see ourselves like him. Taken from desolation and isolation and brought into the presence of the king. Part of God's family sharing in his table with an eternal inheritance. Rejoice in that this morning. But you know, what I love about this is that this story then takes a twist. Mephibosheth continued to live as a member of King David's family. (coughs) One of David's many sons was called Absalom. He was a good looking one with the long hair. And he instigated a rebellion against his father David. And David found himself fleeing for his life. And at one point, Mephibosheth's servant 
Ziba brings him vital supplies. But he also tries to pull a little bit of a stunt. This is where we read in uh, chapter 16. When David had gone a short distance beyond the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. The king asked Ziba, why have you brought these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and fruit are for the men to eat. The wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the wilderness. Then the king asked, Where is your master's grandson? That's Mephibosheth. Ziba said to him, He is staying at Jerusalem because he thinks today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. The king said to Ziba, All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. I humbly bow, Ziba said. May I find favor in your eyes, my lord the king. That's a bit grim, isn't it? Do you like, I mean, I like a bit of adventure. Um, you know, sometimes when I'm reading a, uh, you know, a, a book uh, at night, I have to stop myself going on to the next chapter because it's time to sleep or something. But I really want to know what the next step is because we're left in the air here, aren't we? Poor Mephibosheth, he's been slandered in his absence. He can't defend himself. What is the truth? What is really going on? Ultimately, the rebellion fails and Absalom dies. Another story to to Samuel, chapter 13 to 19, if you want some really uh, good reading. Eventually, Mephibosheth turns up and quashes the lies told about him. What is more, it's evident that his love for David was such that he took no care of himself while David was away. This is what we read in chapter 19. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. He had not taken care of his feet, or trimmed his moustache, or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? He said, My lord the king, since I your servant am lame, I said I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death from the Lord my king. But you gave your servant a place amongst those who eat at your table. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? The king said to him, why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord the king has returned home safely. What we see here in this part of the story is the heart of Mephibosheth. We've seen the heart of David to show kindness, the kindness of God. And now we see the heart of Mephibosheth. His concern is only 
for his king and his saviour. Despite being slandered, an advantage taken of his disability, does he ask the king for justice? No. He's prepared to give up everything for the love of his king. Do you know, as I was um, thinking of that part of the story and thinking of those words, the words of an really old hymn came to me. We don't ever sing it. Um, some of you might know it. It's written by Fanny Crosby. Well, she wrote loads of hymns, didn't she? But you know, it says this. I think some people say this as a, like, kind of jokingly sometimes. But this is what she wrote. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name. But his love abideth ever, through eternal years the same. And it goes on uh, in that sort of vein. The final verse says, Take the world, but give me Jesus. In his cross my trust shall be, till with clearer, brighter vision, face to face, my Lord, I see. Is that wonderful? Is it great to be able to say that and mean it? We sing, we've sung some lovely words this morning. Sometimes I had a a friend uh, who used to say, we sing beyond ourselves. And I had to stop him once and ask him, well, what do you mean? And so he said, well, if you read the hymns, he said, the words are wonderful, but after we sung them, we just go out and live as if we'd never heard them. Good point, isn't it? I have a lot of admiration for hymn writers because sometimes they just, well, they just get it so right, don't they? They have that gift to express perhaps what we feel. Um, Songs are a great aid to our worship. They're not the only part of it, but they are great. So I've got the whole bit here if anybody wants to read it afterwards. Take the world, but give me Jesus. So what's my point? What's my challenge this morning? Well, first of all, there's a question. Are you one of the redeemed? I spoke to the children, I spoke to all of us, of the good news of the gospel. Have you received that? Have you responded to it? Are you trusting in Jesus, God's Son? And if you are, if you're amongst the redeemed this morning, if the songs we've sung, the prayers we've shared, the words we have rehearsed together this morning, if they mean something to you, are you rejoicing in that today? Where then is your focus? Where is your heart? Is it fixed on the earthly or on the heavenly? I'll leave you with a reminder from uh, Peter. Um, and I've put my own emphasis on some of the words. Since you called on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here, in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, A lamb without blemish or defect. 
I trust that's done for you what it's done for me this morning. Encouraged you, heartened you, and challenged you. Amen.